Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. My name is Tiasha Zeitz, and in this episode, I'm sharing with you a panel discussion about challenges contributing to medication errors. This panel was part of the premiere of the documentary Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors? So you might want to listen to that first. A version adapted for radio is available on the podcast, and you can also check the link in the show notes to see the movie on YouTube. For a brief introduction, unsafe medication practices and medication errors are a leading cause of injury and avoidable harm in healthcare systems across the world. Globally, the cost associated with medication errors has been estimated at 42 billion American dollars annually, according to WHO. In England, medication-related errors cause around 1,700 deaths every year. The estimates for the United States are around 100,000 deaths annually based on different pieces of research. You're going to hear a panel discussion between six speakers from Kuwait, New Zealand, UK, Switzerland and Taiwan. The panelists are from the UK, Stefan Siekerski, nurse by background, currently better delivery manager for the UK and Ireland. Katrina Azer from New Zealand. She is a pharmacist, patient advocate, board member of the Pharmacy Council of New Zealand. Robert Johnston is a chronic patient from the UK, who is the board member of the European Forum for Good Clinical Practice, an international foundation for integrated care. Alexander Jankulowski is a nurse by background, coming from Kuwait, where he works as the CEO of the Kuwait Hospital. Hicham Naim is from Switzerland. He's the global head of integrated and personalized patient care program at Takeda. He's also a digital advisory board member there. And from Taiwan, we've got Professor Ju Chuan Jack Lee, a researcher of artificial intelligence in medicine and medical informatics. He's a practicing dermatologist and also the editor-in-chief of BMJ Health and Care Informatics. You can also find the names of the panelists in the show notes, as well as the link to the documentary on YouTube. Now to the discussion. A brief background from my end. As mentioned, uh, my name is Tiasha Zaitz. I'm the host of Faces of Digital Health. I'm a journalist by background, but this uh, particular topic is specific for me because I'm also a chronic patient with experiences about uh, problems with medication prescribing and an overdose, which happened to me while I was still a pediatric patient. Um, and I worked as a healthcare journalist for several years, so I got a great insight into how doctors think, what's the doctor perspective on healthcare, what the challenges are from the doctor's perspective. And I felt that I really want to explore this a little bit closer than from the overview that you get as a journalist. So I transitioned to the healthcare IT industry and I'm now a part of the uh, team working on electronic prescribing at a healthcare IT company called Better. And that's basically where I got a little bit more insight into how challenges happened. And um, I started one wondering if we have technology and there's studies uh, showing that technology helps with medication errors um, 
to which extent is the state with medication errors better today than perhaps it was 10 or 20 years ago when To Err is Human was first published. And this is how the, um, this documentary came uh, together. And I'm very happy to uh, say that we've got great panelists that are now going to share their thoughts and reflections on the movie because the whole topic and the movie itself is, of course, my interpretation and what I was able to put it together uh, as a story. But this story is only uh, a very kind of a, a short insight into the complexity that surrounds medication management. I want to start with the first round of questions. And let's start with the patient perspective. So uh, Robert, welcome. We've got Robert Johnstone, who's the board member of the European Forum for Good Clinical Practice and the International Foundation for Integrated Care. And Robert, uh, maybe you can start with uh, kind of your side. You've been living with a chronic condition for several decades and in the movie in the end, uh, Abdulillah Al-Hassawi mentioned that we should include patients more in decision making. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background and briefly, what do you see that has changed in terms of how involved are patients in decision making um, and how are patients increasingly brave to even participate in decision-making since in the role of a patient, one is vulnerable and you, you might not want to oppose a doctor uh, because you want to be in good relations with somebody that's, uh, that has your life in their hands. So, Robert, please go ahead. Okay, thank you very much indeed. I hope everybody can hear me adequately. Um, you better send a little chat message, I guess, if there's any problems. Um, yes, I've lived for over 65 years with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, for the first 20 years of that, I was heavily dependent on medication. Um, I was very fortunate that um, I had supportive parents who helped me through the experience and so on, but I was even more fortunate that I learned something um, which helped my self-empowerment before it was trendy to be an empowered patient, um, before the words were even used, I think. When I was at university, I learned something called transcendental meditation, which I learned just to help me with the stress of my final exams. But in practice, it gave me the confidence to be a much better patient, to observe what was happening in my body, um, to modify my behavior um, and my medication, uh, as I found I could do. Unfortunately, I got a lot of resistance from my rheumatologist when I went to see him. He said, I never gave you permission to do that with your medication. And I said, actually, you did. You said to me when I went to university, you're, quotes an intelligent young man. I give you permission to modify your medication as you see fit. Um, so I have a lot of experience of observing possibilities for good behavior and bad behavior with the medical profession. I would say one of the main issues was touched on in this in this um, program, and that is the attitudes of people in healthcare towards their patients. Where um, you know even a good physician will listen to you, but maybe not respect what you're saying. And and I uh, these days I've worked a lot with patient organisations, and I really see the value of patient organisations for not only informing patients. Um, not only working with physicians and hospital administrators to make services better for everybody, 
um, but actually in terms of helping to empower the patients, to give them the confidence to challenge their physicians in a constructive um, and hopefully friendly way. I take exactly the point that was made at the end there. Um, patients are often intimidated. They only go and see doctors when they really have to very often. Um, they may be very ill, very tired, um, very intimidated. And the physicians and all the healthcare staff can do many, many good things to support them, to give them confidence, to encourage them to participate. That will help um, enable them to better adhere to whatever treatment regime is agreed, especially if they're involved in that process of choosing a, a, a regime. So I think that's all I should say now. I don't want to overuse my time, but I'm happy to take questions and, and interact more later on. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. We are definitely going to have some time for Q&A. And um, so the next uh, speaker is going to be Katrina Azer from New Zealand. I'm just going to, she couldn't uh, make it today. So we recorded her statement in advance and I'm going to share that with you um, now. So she's going to do a short recap of kind of what touched her most in the movie and um, continue with a little bit of her reflection, I hope. The movie uh, Overdose highlighted a few important issues that disseminate throughout the healthcare system. So um, pay, some of the issues that were highlighted were things like paternalism in healthcare, uh, lack of patient voice, error in documentation, um, documenting errors as such. Uh, polypharmacy and non-adherence. Um, so patients, you know, forget to take their medications and this could be due to excess and affordability. So not, not being able to afford the cost of healthcare. Uh, the disconnect between the patients and the healthcare solutions that we provide. Um, so while companies might come up with solutions like more apps, um, these can, the, the, the continuous reminder can overwhelm the patients. Um, also poor patient health literacy. Um, there is lack of automation in terms of access to electronic health records, like beta, for example, um, or limited data sharing um, between providers. Um, also insufficient induction. So when we expose um, people to new systems, they need the training and the support um, when they're introduced. And lack of, uh, lack of staff buy-in or clinician buy-in can lead to more adverse reactions, as was highlighted in the documentary. Um, my background is I am a clinical pharmacist. I also sit on the Pharmacy Council of New Zealand board. So I have uh, dealt with complaints against pharmacists. Some of them are due to medication-related errors. Some of them aren't. Uh, I'm also a graduate of the Australasian Institute of uh, Clinical Governance. So clinical governance is a forte for me, and it is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. Uh, Medication-related errors um, have a few causes uh, that could be mitigated. Uh, essentially, the solutions lie, I think, from my point of view, in healthcare organisations adopting good clinical governance principles. So being accountable and responsible for the healthcare that provided to our patients and making patient care our top priority. Uh, I quite like a quote by Professor Liam Donaldson, so to err is human, to cover up is unforgivable, and to fail to learn is inexcusable. And I think one of the downsides that I've seen over complaints, the complaints that I've seen is people or clinicians who fail to take on board the responsibility of the error that was made and uh, develop processes and frameworks by which this error could be mitigated in the future. 
So I'm just going to stop sharing now. And I think um, the quote from uh, Katrina, which she mentioned, so to every human to cover up is unforgivable and to fail to learn is inexcusable, is definitely something that we can all take home and think about. And um, going from that question, and given that um, Katrina mentioned the culture uh, and kind of the um, leadership that's important when it comes to patient safety, I might want to turn uh, over to Alexander, who is the CEO of the hospital in Kuwait. Alexander, you're also a nurse by background. So you've got two very interesting perspectives on uh, management in the hospital and on the patient safety and medication management. How do you, as a CEO, see medication errors and how do you try to minimize them as an executive in your institution? Yeah, look, good evening. Thank you very much for having me. Um, let me let me not talk as a CEO for the moment. Let me talk as a nurse. Um, and I want to catch on to something the uh, previous speaker was saying, which is the accountability and responsibility that healthcare providers are not willing to take. Um, it's true. Uh, often that happens. At the same time, um, holding people accountable and responsible gets often misconstrued with not providing a just culture. Now I'm talking as a leader. Now this is a very fine line. When you hold people accountable and responsible, you may not be seen as holding them within the framework of a just culture. So you might you might be seen as introducing a blame culture, yeah. a very fine line to walk uh, that I've walked many a times, sometimes successful, sometimes unsuccessful. And so when you are enforcing holding people accountable and responsible, uh, particularly if you have um, – we work here in the Middle East in a melting pot of societies that come from very um, power-fearing uh, societies – if you hold them accountable and, and responsible, they may even hide more. So that is a very fine line to work. And um, I've worked in Australia as well as a nurse. So I've worked in Europe and um, I've seen this across the continuum. So it doesn't really, uh, it is easy said and a lot harder done as a nurse and as a leader. I have to say that. Um, now, when it comes to the, to the video, Actually, very strikingly, in the very beginning, the paramedic who was talking about medication errors and everything, I have been a patient myself as an acute with a severe sepsis. And uh, even though I was very sick, literally, I noticed that every single medication was delayed. Every single antibiotic was delayed more than one hour, which in itself is a sentinel event in a septic patient. And when the antibiotic was delivered, Often the nurse was so rushed that when she primed the line, she wasted about 10, 20% of the dose. So if you add all of this up, my hospitalization was probably prolonged massively. My, my whole course of illness was probably prolonged and my risk of dying was actually very high. If you would have looked at, you know, scoring tools, my risk of dying was very high. Now I could clearly tell I was a weekend admission in this hospital and the, the team was exceptionally stressed. So who to blame? Mm -hmm. And again, this comes back to this accountability responsibility. Um, as a leader, I have to say, uh, particularly when it comes um, to integrating uh, sort of, you know, intelligent solutions, uh, electronic medical records and so forth. Um, I'm often very frustrated across all systems that I've worked in with the healthcare regulator because they have absolutely uh, often no stake into uh, regulating and, and, and managing uh, how uh, electronic medical records and solutions are being developed. So you have a whole bunch of um, people, sometimes with very good intentions and sometimes very commercially driven, developing solutions that are highly inadequate. And I, I, I challenge you to take electronic medical records 
And you will find that probably most of them are struggling with the medication safety component. They get everything else done, but I bet you they struggle with uh, a seamless transition from order to pharmacy review to bring it to the nurse, to administration. That's where most of these electronic medical records fail. And um, it's uh, as, a, as an administrator, that's very frustrating because this is where the devil is in the detail. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh, you kind of uh, made me uh, want to go to Jack Lee next because uh, so Jack, welcome uh, for everyone. Professor Zhu Chuan Jack Lee is a researcher of artificial intelligence. He's a dermatologist uh, by background um, as an MD, and he's also the editor in chief of BMJ Health and Care Informatics. So you know, as a doctor, as a researcher of AI and decision support systems, um, how do you see that all the challenges that perhaps um, Alexander just mentioned could be mitigated with technologies? So efficiency, um, prevention of mistakes, how, how, you know, how can you combine your, all, the, all your roles in an opinion? Yeah. Um, so apparently, um, like many of the uh, panelists already uh, stated, Um, medical errors is actually a systems problem. Um, so, I mean, the whole health, healthcare system is still mostly uncoordinated. If, if we review the paper, the reports from the uh, IOM uh, back in the year 2000, which was 20 years ago, that started the whole patient safety movement, uh, many of the problems still persist uh, that, that's mentioned in the reports. So it's still quite uncoordinated and, and the, the the jobs uh, in the specialization is even more complex than 20 years ago. And the options, you know, I was in the environment, uh, I'm a dermatologist. So when I work in a remote island, uh, it's very difficult for me to make medication error because they only have, have has four medications for dermatology, <laughs> right? So you pick one of the four, how uh, you cannot make a lot of errors. When I back to my hospital, I have like 200 drugs that I can choose from. So, and they they all have different dosage uh, and rules and, and all that. So, we have we are living we are putting healthcare professional and patients in a uh, very complicated environment, and the environment is not getting simpler. It's getting more complicated over time because new technology, new drugs, new ways of treating patients. Um, uh, We, we are already reaching a tipping point that if we don't use a lot of information technology and AI, we are bound to make a lot of mistakes, right? Um, for example, um, a drug. There are so many different drug names for the same type of drugs, and there's, and, and there's no good regulation about the names. So I think in the initial uh, several minutes of the movie, Uh, already look alike, sound alike, was already mentioned, and there's a long list as described in the movie, and we're still making those mistakes every day, you know, everywhere around the world. Um, and why is it so hard even to prevent, you know, a known problem that's been there for a very long time? I mean, that look like, sound alike problem. It's, a be it's because we are living in a very complicated, very complex environment, and doctors when they're using computers, they have so many that can choose from, right? So every time I type A, I got 
you know, 150 choice. I type B, I have 250 choices. So because in a very complex environment, we are bound to make mistakes. Um, that back to the original question, how AI can help. AI can make things very simple, meaning we should take advantage of AI and, and IT uh, development and make the environment simpler for our healthcare professionals. For example, um, if you if you prescribe medication, you're prescribing some medications, and you prescribe some med- medication, some drugs that doesn't that cannot be explained by the diagnosis you're having here. You should be, you know, reminded, or the drugs, the list of drugs should be limited to what makes sense for this patient, right? Unless you click on something like expand the drug list. But but I mean, we can use AI to make a growing, complicated healthcare environment simpler. And with a simpler environment, there are less mistakes. You know, they're less prone to mistakes. Um, one very serious lookalike, like incident in, in our country is um, penicillin. Um, so uh, a emergency doctor prescribed penicillin using the writing prescription. That was like 30 years ago. And the patient was injected with potassium. Okay, it's a high concentration uh, you know, potassium. And the patient heart stopped right away. Um, and then the patient died. She was a very young, uh, like 20-year-old girl. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the environment tends to be very complicated, very complex. Um, so we need to make the environment simpler by take advantage of information technology. Uh, I think this is, uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of examples, but I'm trying to make it you know, simpler. So uh, IT, if, if IT can help, it can help make us, make our job easier, simpler, and um, reduce the burnout. Uh, as many of uh, the panelists already implied, if you're, you've been working for 48 hours, you're bound to make mistakes, you know, any human. So we need to reduce burnout. We need to make the uh, environment simpler. And, and by doing this, we will make the mistake. Uh, we'll make fewer mistakes and less error. Right. So patient will be safer. Thank you, Jack. Since you mentioned uh, look-alike and sound-alike medications, in the movie, uh, there's a few examples of medications that look very similar because the packaging is uh, very similar or almost the same. Um, There's the whole list of uh, medications that can be written and can be misread because they look so uh, similar. And at this point, I would like to give the word to Hicham uh, Naim. So Hicham is the global head of integrated and personalized patient care program and uh, part of the digital advisory board at Takeda. He's a pharmacist by background. And I'm uh, wondering, you know, from a representative working in the pharma industry, how do you see these challenges with medication packaging an overdose of the COVID vaccine happened because six doses were, were in one vial and the nurse didn't notice that that vial wasn't diluted yet. So all these things are kind of a shocking examples, especially for the general public and especially knowing that there are strict regulations in terms of what name can be registered when the pharma company introduces a new medication. 
So just, you know, how can pharma contribute to increase medication safety in these aspects? Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, can you hear me well? Perfect. Uh, first thing, thanks a lot, Chasa. That was a, a great movie. And personally, I learned a lot as a clinical pharmacist, but also as a patient. And uh, a really big thank you. Uh, I mean, before talking about lookalike, uh, sounded like a problem in, and how what pharma could do, I think it's it's important to say that no medicine is 100% safe. And it's responsible for everyone to make sure in this chain of event that, that whether it's a pharma, physician, pharmacist, or patient are aware about the, the drug, the effect. And I think one of the most important role of the pharma, besides making sure that the drug has the right risk and benefit profile, is to make sure that provide accurate, up-to-date, and clear information about the safe usage of those medicines. I think that's that's one of the most important things, and we need to emphasize that not only to physician, pharmacists, or nurses, but also to to patient and caregiver. And, and I couldn't agree more with uh, Robert in the beginning when he was talking about the fact that patients today are not necessarily listened to, and they are the most underutilized resource in healthcare. Now, talking about lookalikes and all like it's it's a it's a problem, and uh, and I'm talking not only as a as someone who is working for pharma, but also as a pharmacist. Because I, when I was in, working in a hospital, I have the same problem. And many times we were close to medical error. And I think pharma, if the regulation is not here, they, they can do at least two things. One is to make sure that when they select a drug name, that is not confused with existing drug names, especially if they are dangerous. The second element where I believe also there is a high risk of, of problem, and you have eloquently showed that today, is the packaging, the design of the packaging. It has to be clear, unique, and not be confused with others. Now, talking about packaging also, I think we talked a lot about uh, drug safety, but mainly about medical error and and um, and overdosage. I think there's other element that we need to look at when we look to the packaging. It is an essential constituent of the medicine. It has to guarantee the stability and integrity of the drug. Because if it's not the case, th- this could be harmful to the patient also. Uh, it, it is also an essential source of information for patient NCP. There's another element that um, when we talk about packaging and the role of the pharma here is, is to make it as user-friendly, as easy to use as possible, because it can guarantee a proper use and promote compliance by patient. And I think example of what pharma can do it's for instance for compliance to use a calendar blister that's a simple one but also it needs to guarantee uh, safety an example is for instance in in hospital setting it's the single dosage packaging or in some case safety cap for children now there's one thing i want to close with that because i think it's very important you've mentioned that doctors spend on average seven minutes per patient most of the doctors and nurses are experiencing today what neuroscientist Adam Ghazali said, say cognitive crisis. There's a lot of screen time. There's a lot of information overload. And this creates like a, a fatigue and stress. And if you look to the statistic, more than a third of physicians and nurses today are experiencing symptom of burnout. And I think pharma has a role to reduce the stress level, at least in the packaging and naming. Okay. Uh, thank you. So, you know, uh, given that you mentioned uh, the burnout and the stress in the hospital environment, I'm, I hope Alexander can maybe later comment on how is it 
even possible, you know, that uh, doctors work such long hours. I never understood that as a patient, but before reaching that uh, answer, um, I might want to go back to our final uh, panelist. So I would like to also welcome Stefan uh, Siekierski. He's also a nurse by background. Um, he was, was an electronic prescribing project manager, and he currently works as the better delivery manager for the UK and Ireland. And um, he, in his past, he implemented five different electronic prescribing systems in six NHS trusts. So maybe uh, Stefan can you offer your comment as well in terms of how do you see uh, the whole challenge, you know, with mistakes, how can they be reduced with uh, EPMA implementation? Um, and we also saw that if there is no buy-in, so if the implementation is not properly done, um, then the hospital can end up in increase in adverse drug events. Yes, thanks, uh, Kasia. Um, so, so as you quite rightly mentioned, I've, I've implemented quite a few different electronic prescribing systems, each of them different um, in, in very different hospitals. Um, and I think it was Alexander that mentioned, you know, not every system is, is actually designed by a clinician for a clinician. And without that buying, I, I've learned over the years that it's not really the system that you're getting that's being implemented. It, it's it's the clinicians around it that can actually help develop that product. So if if you were, if I was to, to take an example, quite a few years back, I, I joined a trust where a system had been implemented. The the actual clinical needs hadn't been taken into account. It went into a theatre system and within two or three hours an incident had occurred uh, and the system got pulled out almost straight away everyone went back to paper because the system just was not fit so from that point onwards because i'd only just joined the team i'd i developed the the solution around the clinical people and so from, from now on what i always say it's my biggest risk factor to any kind of project implementation is making sure you've got that clinical buy-in i mean you, you your clinicians can help you with your formula design with order sets with order sentences and you, you can shape a system to your local policies, your national policies, or uh, indeed medical guidelines. Um, I mean, there was an example in the in the video about um, uh, the purple pen being used to highlight um, some of the high-risk medications and some of the errors around that. Now, if you had clinical buy-in in a system at the point of before implementing you can highlight these kind of medications within the system so that at the point of the the prescriber then comes to a live system you've got that there alerted to you one of the things i did in the last um project um at y valley at the hospital around around um in in the uk is there was um building in actual tasks attributed to some medications so for example in the in, in the situation the purple pen with gentamicin, as well as actually prescribing gentamicin, we were able to prescribe tasks associated to that at the same time. So pause, check levels, do a blood test, call on this. And those, these, whilst on a paper chart, you can probably highlight that somewhere. Actually, on the medication system, it was highlighted as an as a actual thing to do as part of the paper, as part of the digital chart. Um, but I, th I think, you know, this is pre-implementation. This is where we can help design and, and help combat some of the some of the issues. I remember when I very first started, it, it was uh, the biggest one was methotrexate. Methotrexate was, was quite um, a common issue. 
and know a lot of paper processes now within hospitals are are robust enough to to combat some of the the, the, the prescribing of them of, of methotrexate but it's the system itself that can prevent a prescriber going outside of protocol it can prevent the wrong clinician from prescribing it that hasn't had the the the, the right training same with your intrathecal roots and, and other medications like that and um, so yeah it's definitely worth having the the clinician buy-in but i think it, it probably expands on from from that is that you need to support um post implementation so i would say this needs to be a continuous support um, and and I, it's not it's not always um the support of change in the system or design the system sometimes it's support of the person um a couple of us have, have a couple of people have mentioned things like burnout so so one thing i've always done is had a um a telephone support line a a 24/7 phone number where nurses doctors can ring up and have advice on the system now that advice so in some hospitals, you'll have a 24-7 pharmacy on-call cover. You might have a, a nursing cover. But sometimes the person on the end of the phone doesn't exactly know who to phone up. And if you've got an extra person, an extra set of ears to say, well, actually, I'll tell you what, this is actually a technical issue. We can help you. It's a clinical issue, phoning pharmacist, or, hey, I can actually go onto your system and help you. It provides a, a support, not just to the product, but to the human being behind the product. And it just gives them that extra motivation that it's not just them there with the patient. It, you're there with the patient. You're there with them. And, you know, they. I've had phone calls at 2 a.m. in the morning and they've apologised for waking me up. And I've said, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> you know, you're tired. I'm tired. Let's get through this together. You know, it's the patient comes first. Um, not not actually the product, not actually what we do in the process. Um so yeah, by having the support network, and and that's that, that's the product isn't the system half time. I I believe the product is the support around it and the the person within it. Um, you, made, you made a perfect introduction to kind of the second round of questions. So we um, mentioned a few challenges that are there, but I really want us to leave this discussion with perhaps um, solutions or maybe sharing of good practices, um, as Duncan Cripps mentioned in the uh, movie. Uh, it's important to share also what's good so others can perhaps take on those practices. And just to start the second round, I'm going to again share with you a short statement from uh, Katrina um, about, you know, just her thoughts uh, where the problems are and what could be changed. So let's see that. I think um, one of the speakers in the videos uh, mentioned the blame culture um, and that has been suggested as a contributor to high levels of medical errors. Um, people make errors which leads to accidents. Accidents can lead to death. The standard solution is to blame people involved. Um, if we find out who made the error and punish them, we solve the problem, right? No, it's wrong. <laughs> the problem is seldom the fault of the individual. It is the fault of the system. So change the people without changing the system and the problem will continue. And this is actually a quote by Don Warman from Design of Everyday Things. So the the message of the quote is stop blaming people for the errors that they make. Yes, there will be errors that um, that will be individual fault, but these are seldom the, this is seldom the case. It's often a case of the system that kind of perpetuates error. Finally, one of the important things that I would like to mention is um, design thinking. So ensuring the solutions that 
we put in place are user friendly both for the clinician and for the end user or the patient through adopting design adopting design thinking concepts so like things like uh, empathy and understanding the needs of the patient as the stakeholder uh, assessing all sides of the problem that we're trying to address and being solution focused um, experimenting and collaborating with all the parties involved so the patient and the clinician um, the problem is nowadays we just see we just see all these apps and all these systems and all you're doing is adding another pile to the patient's ever existing um, um, pile of apps on their phones and that can overwhelm the patient so we need to make the solution unique and actually addressing a real unmet need for the patient um, and I think that that's that probably concludes um, my list of the possible solutions uh, and over and all I think if there was one thing that I would add to that would be communication so good communication between teams whether it's you know, um, through apps um, or through face-to-face -face communication is, is important. It underpins every aspect of good healthcare provision. The problem is that healthcare systems or we as healthcare providers like to operate in silos, you know, and individually. We don't think, you know, who else is involved in this patient's care and how can I work with them? How can I collaborate and integrate with other providers? We need to just work together and like you were saying before you know patients get prescribed a medication that people and you know and other um, specialities have no idea about well that is really poor patient care because this is when adverse events tend to happen is because there isn't a a, a shared healthcare record between all providers and I think you know it's 21st century and if there are health systems that don't have a tool like that I think it's it's a disgrace, really, <laughs> you know, to be to be thinking that we're here and we don't have a healthcare record that is shared across disciplines by all providers. And then the patient, you know, it's, it's embarrassing when you have to ask the patient, what medications are you taking? Here we are in the 21st century where everything is available online. And you have to ask them, what, what medications are you taking? And you have to write it down. I just don't think that makes any sense. So, yes, there is definitely room for improvement. Healthcare uh, uh, medical errors are um, the responsibility of all healthcare providers. It is our, our responsibility, and we need to be accountable for reducing and mitigating errors. Um, and uh, we need to put patient care, patient-centric care, or patient and family-centric care at the heart of what we do. Um, then we will start to save money because errors lead to more money expenditure and we will provide effective and efficient care. So putting the patient at the heart of what we do is really, really important. Uh, you, you need to unmute. Oh, sorry about that again. Uh, so uh, let's start with the second round of uh, question. And at this stage, I would like to start with uh, Hicham. Um, you know, as your role that's kind of looking at digital health solutions um, from the pharma perspective, where do you see most opportunities for improvement of medication-related patient safety, given your role, as I mentioned, as the global head of integrated and personalized patient care? What does pharma see in digital health? 
Yeah, I mean, where to start? There's a lot of opportunities, but I think I want to highlight something that I heard about uh, about uh, the previous panelists when she was talking about using design thinking, human, human-centered design. Uh, I was struck by a study where they looked to uh, the, using eye pupil data and they're registering uh, digital fatigue. And what was striking is that over one third of physicians in, in an ICU experienced fatigue in just the first minute of EHR use. And why I want to put that up front, I think technology cannot be the only solution. And uh, it, it, it can, it can be back, back, backfire, basically, create more workload for, for physicians, more stress and more burnout. When we're talking about the burnout, one of the problems of the burnout is not only about the long shift, it's because also of the, of the different system they're using. They're not user-friendly and they create more stress for them. Now, talking about opportunities uh, where, where pharma uh, could contribute, and again, contribute, because I don't think pharma has all the solutions. Uh, one could be, the easiest one is direct information. It's basically how to make the information about medication, the interaction, as easy as possible. Make it the access accurate, up-to-date when needed. I think that's very important. Uh, I mean, beside the, the classical leaflet and packaging and call center, today we are in 21st century. And if a doctor needs any information, he wants to have it now. And a uh, couple of things that pharma is exploring is the simple one is to chat functionality. So you, you prevent this wait line on, on, on those call center. Uh, but like in what we are currently exploring smart agent where you have an AI behind that because the, the value of using AI here is you reduce the wait time, but also you reduce human error. Another example of technology that pharma is exploring, uh, my company is exploring, is using smart packaging. We're using technology like NFC or, or just a pure QR code or RFID, where basically using your smartphone, you can access all the information about this product. And, and this also can limit the misuse of this product, medical error, but also sometimes we didn't talk about that, the counterfeit. That could be also a source of harm for patient. Uh, the, the second area where I believe pharma could contribute is pharmacovigilance, is how to make e- as easy as possible the reporting and monitoring of adverse event and medical uh, medication error, because this can improve transparency and ultimately can avoid future uh, adverse event and medication error. Uh, the third one, I mean, they are more more expert than me here. It's clinical decision support. I mean, there are tools today, but they're not yet ready. And Mark uh, did it perfectly eloquently when he was talking about basically having a long list of medication. It doesn't make sense to have the full list because you put an A. It has to be linked. It has to be contextual, linked to the patient uh, uh, characteristic, the diagnosis, and so on. And th- that that also could help analyze the drug interaction, not only within the prescription, but also looking at the patient history. I live in Switzerland, and it's one of the most advanced uh, healthcare system. And when I was in university hospital, and I need to come back to my uh, family doctor, I had to take my data on a CD, literally, because the, because there is not one system that talk to each other. And, and finally, I think, uh, and this is a bit tricky part, is th- how can you leverage digital tool to do disease management and, and help patient without, and it was well said during the, the video, w- without reminding patient every time, every day that they are sick. So, and one of the elements is adherence. And here I'm more 
talking about not the persistence being compliant over time, but the element of concordance, you know, how to make sure that patients are taking medication as prescribed, dosing, frequency, interaction. That's a very important and, and simple tools that we have developed. One, it's an AR tool, augmented reality tool that basically help patients when they use their own smartphone, learn how to self-inject themselves with a patient or caregiver. Another, if I stay just in the injection, we developed a tool called injection tracker because sometimes when you do a subcute, you don't want patients to inject themselves all the time in the same body part. So this tool can help them basically uh, alternate places for injection. And those are just simple tools that can basically reduce the burden of the disease on the patient. And like I said, again, technology is not all the solution. And I think it, it's a system problem it's a, and needs to be solved by not only pharma, by multiple stakeholders. Thank you, Hicham. Um, you definitely highlighted a lot of aspects. And um, given your mention about um, AI, which was also talked about in the movie and um, explained that, you know, um, there there's two types of news when it comes to AI in healthcare. So one is AI is going to solve everything. And the second one is, oh my God, we got an AI system. It got, it got one thing wrong. So there's a difference between uh, what we kind of see as normal when humans make mistakes. But when it comes to mis- machines, we um, expect 100% accuracy. So at this point, I would like to give the word to Jack Lee, who is the researcher of AI in medicine and uh, Journalists always have one question, and that is, when are we going to see that in practice? You know, so I wonder from your perspective, and um, just to make sure that you unmute yourself when you start talking, is um, how do you see where, what kind of systems will be in place in five to ten years? Not just on retrospective data, but in real time, without the concept drift, so algorithms losing their accuracy over time. Okay. Um, well, uh, it could be a 60-minute lecture, but <laughs> I try to make it 60 seconds. But um, that's why uh, I always put AI and IT together when we're talking about patient safety and, and, and medical errors, because whatever works, you know, we should apply them right away as soon as we can. Um, there are medical error problems that can be solved without AI, just by simple IET, right? For example, uh, maximum daily dosage should be applied to all the drugs used for children um, and maybe also seniors because you don't need AI to do that, right? It's just simple IET, just simple rules. But there are also problems or errors that cannot be captured or prevented by simple AI. Uh, by simple IT, you really need uh, AI to do it. Um, and there are many different levels of AI. So when I'm say, so when I say uh, you need advanced AI to do it, I am mostly referring to machine learning based AI that deal with you know complex situation. For example, um, if we prescribe a drug, that's a sound alike look alike, but it's not the right drug. It will be very difficult to use conventional IT to stop that. Because there are many, many factors you have to check to know whether this is an intentional prescription and of label use or this is the wrong drug, right? 
Um, that's the time that AI could come into play and really recommend the right drug. Uh, because when you're in a very complex situation that there are, there are maybe hundreds or thousands of variables that you have to consider all at once, then traditional IT uh, would not work very well. And of course, human doesn't work that way. So human only consider like seven variables, and that's that's probably maximum for, for most humans. Uh, very smart doctors could probably consider 12 variables, but no one can, can you know, look at hundreds of variables, thousands of variables. So that's when AI comes in. Um, so in the next, I, I don't, I'm not sure about five, 10 years, but if, if you know, three to five years, I would say um, we really can use AI in terms of uh, making the choices simpler uh, because they are, as I just, just described in, the, in our first part of the uh, panel, the environment is so complex. And, uh, you know, I'm a doctor, then I, I go to the same hospital every day. And I still sometimes get surprised by the drugs we have, by the procedures we, that's available, and, you know, like by the choice in the lab and exam that's, that was there and I, what did, I did not even notice. So it's, it's those complexity that contribute collectively to contribute to, uh, to a lot of areas. So a, what AI can do is it can make the environment easier. Um, so without further action, it will make your choices simpler, you know, to a, to kind of a, a, a confined uh, environment. And at least you want to go out of your comfort zone. You can click something and you go out. Um, but usually, so AI could put you in a safe zone that, you know, it's harder uh, to make mistakes, right? So uh, this is, of course, just the general idea. But um, as I can see, it can be applied in prescribing drugs, procedures, lab exams. Um, it can be uh, applied to, you know, even search code decisions uh, and, and, you know, ICU, many ICU decisions. Uh, because we just don't need, you know, um, we don't need everything, uh, every possible prescribing, you know, items at our fingertip. We don't need that. All we need is what we are comfortable with, right? So um, methotrexate, the drug was mentioned a while ago uh, in the pen, by, the pen, by one of the panelists. As a dermatology, I prescribe myself Trexate at a very low dose, like 2.5 milligram to a patient with psoriasis. But one day, our hospital has a different mesotrexate that's 25 milligram. And I didn't see it. I just saw mesotrexate, and I picked mesotrexate, and I end up prescribed 25 milligram mesotrexate to my patient. Um, it's the nurse that recognized, oh, uh, Dr. Lee, are you, you sure you want to prescribe 25 milligrams? I said, no, no, no. We, as a dermatologist, we never prescribe 25 milligram mesotrexate because that's for breast cancer. We only, every time we only prescribe 2.5 milligram mesotrexate. So, so the system, the AI in the background should know that and prevent me from seeing the 25 milligram mesotrexate, right? But in order to perform this task, the AI system needs to know a lot of variables in order to be performing a task at the Right, uh, and without a lot of uh, inconvenience, right? So I think, um, all you know, it's, there are just many, many possible ways. But overall, I think AI could pro pre uh, provide a simpler and less error-prone. I'm not saying, I'm not 
I'm not sure it's error proof, but at least it's error less, you know, environment. So human are less easier to make a mistake. Thank you, Jack. And uh, the situation that you mentioned, so AI preventing doctors for, from making an error, that's kind of the dream or not even a dream, an expectation of clinicians working in the clinical practice. And unfortunately, they're often kind of disappointed because at the moment, you know, the systems that are used are basically um, what I would say a um, healthcare IT solutions 1.0 and we want to have 3 4.0 so definitely i want to go to alexander next you know as the uh, ceo of a hospital uh, do you often get approached by uh, startups or solutions that are claiming that they can support clinicians and how are you you know approaching um, the aspect of adding technology to improve medication safety um, is there any plans that you can share with us in terms of uh, how do you see most progress can be made in a short time. Yeah, I get quite often. I probably just deleted three emails today from companies that that um, promise the world in, in every way. Um, I want to say I'm a great fan of AI and machine learning, and I've seen its power um, if used uh, sensibly. So, for instance, um, combining coding data with pathways. Um, and then using the same for looking at deviation and, and medication prescription practices and so forth. That's when I think this is where the power comes in. Uh, I think there's huge uh, gain in that. Um, I personally feel I'm still in my infancy and in understanding it, uh, which actually leads me to where I think the, the first solution should come in. The first solution should come in in how healthcare is educated these days. I don't think our healthcare education, medically, nursing, allied health, I don't see it. I don't see people, I don't see new students come through um, um, with a better understanding of um, patient safety and medication safety. And then like, you know, like contemporary solutions. I think um, healthcare education systems, in my opinion, are failing. Uh, my, my oldest is a paramedic um, about two years out. I don't think he had much, Uh, learning in the university based on this. And uh, he works now in a very mature, uh, very large metropolitan healthcare system that you would think has a very sophisticated um, support system, and it does not. It's actually abysmal. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, and um, uh, so I think the, the first solution needs to come in healthcare education. Like, um, look, I've not been attending a, sort of an undergraduate course recently, but I, I would be surprised if... Um, AI and these topics are on the agenda. My, my feeling is you have to go to postgraduate courses and then even then you have to uh, attend courses that are probably geared in this direction. So it's very interest-driven. Um, if you have an interest, you might, like like Dr. Dr. Lee has an interest in it, but I think the maybe the average you know doctor does not. Uh, my doctors, when I speak to them about you know decision support system, some say, well, let's talk in the sky. Some say, oh, another system you want to put on me or another restriction you want to put on me. So um, as many speakers say, unless this is helpful, it actually becomes more uh, dangerous. And the whole thing about... Uh, 
um, sort of, you know, um, alert fatigue or overriding, overriding alerts and all of this. So um, in a previous organization, we were implementing a sort of a su- decision support tool, but the cl- all clinicians asked immediately for, well, we need to be able to override all of this. So, um, you know, it becomes, it becomes a white elephant then, right? Like, you know, you have it, but then you don't have it. It, it becomes sort of a maybe safety feature. The, the very good ones use it, um, or not at all. It's it's not clear to me. When it comes to a best practice um, example, and I think I've mentioned it to you, it's like I heard earlier on about medication reconciliation and how ridiculous in this time and age that you have to ask the patient and then write it all down and then you compare it with the previous list. So in a, in a previous healthcare system, it's work, it's really one of the, the few systems that I've seen where they have um, uh, developed an, uh, uh, sort of a health exchange information system where all EMRs feed into the same database and between private and government hospitals, clinics and tertiary, whatever system you're in, you can see what was ordered, what was uh, prescribed in x-rays and so forth. So I think that's, um, AI needs to come in, but I think there are very, there are many low tech solutions starts with with education and then using the things that we have a lot better. And I think one thing that needs to stop is the medley of electronic medical records that are out there. I think um, not sure who can step in and write a good, great standard about it and, and regulate it, but somehow those, uh, and uh, you know, you don't want to stifle innovation, but uh, uh, I, I think it becomes a zoo of medical records. Um, and then it's, it's very cost driven, right? Like what you can afford as an organization. And uh, I think as Stephen said, uh, many systems are cumbersome. Clinicians don't like them. And um, and then uh, some some systems are they're luring organizations in and clinicians and saying everything can be modified. But you know the systems we work in they're made by humans. So often you find an, an, an acceptable medical record is then modified so much by the clinicians and the end users that it actually replicates the same uh, system and the same errors. So you, all you did is you digitalized a bad system. Um, and so this, again, is the fine line between saying to clinicians, here's what we want you to use because this is safe versus the clinician feeling he has no room to move. Uh, again, many fine lines. Um, yeah, give us another 20 years, I say, and we will see the solution, maybe. Uh, not, not very um, optimistic for sure, but you mentioned one point and without saying it you were basically talking about the most hated word in healthcare and that is interoperability among the systems and I would like to at this point um, ask Stefan who is a representative of a healthcare IT vendor offering an electronic prescribing system how do you see you know this whole um, issue of siloed systems which are still a reality and um, can we encourage vendors to talk more among each other to create kind of bridges so the systems will talk to each other and help um, the end users? Uh, yes, thanks for that again. Um, sorry, you may have seen me move my camera. I was trying to plug my laptop in. I think my battery was about to go. Um, but yeah, from from um, how do we see these systems? I mean, I think a few people have picked up on on yeah, more 
um, in that you know the, the uh, Katrina on the on the on the panel video was mentioning about how many apps people are having, how many different things that people are using. Hitching, you, you mentioned about something a lot of not being very user friendly, uh, and this this is a big problem and it creates more issues. But I think what what we can do in the future is, um, and, and it's been picked up in the chat with Lee and Jack mentioned about medicines reconciliation, is by having a, a lot more data connectivity. So. Building interoperability, you know, it's, it's the it's a big buzzword in healthcare at the moment, but it's also a word that is something that's that's working in in the NHS. Uh, I can give an example. I'm currently working on a current pro, uh, current couple of projects where we're trying to link in what we've got is the the EPS, which is a system where the GP will automatication and it will come out at the pharmacist. So we're able to link into that with hospital systems and grab that medication and and display it visually as to a clinician in the hospital. This is the medication from a GP. Um, People have mentioned that, you know, sometimes a list of medication contextually isn't great if you don't have the context behind it but these are the, these are where we can start building on the interoperability of of different healthcare systems so looking at um not just the eps and gp connect but looking at the inter hospital systems so all of your old ehrs or the the siloed systems that are out there if you can have an intro uh, a platform to view all the information that you need at the point of prescribing Albeit that information may have come from a GP, it may have come from um, the the patients themselves. It's good to have that information there. Some some of the other things that we're doing, I've mentioned, people have talked about um, patients having access to their own information. So we are now looking at building apps where patients themselves can see their own medication. Uh, on my phone, I do have a link to the GP um, that, that I can see my medication on. Now, it's not great. It's not structured. It's not usable. It wouldn't tell me at the moment what I'm discharged on. But this is where this information come, can start being built and being developed. Um, I think... Yeah, so with interoperability, we don't just have to talk about the, the, the wider picture of, um, you know, talking to different healthcare providers of having regional platforms. But there was a, a, a case on the video, I think it was a second person on your video that was talking about the the incident where he was about to be administered medication and he pushed it away. Now, interoperability in here would work in that we are developing ways of looking into um, pulling information out automatically from blood pressure machines, um, uh, heart rate monitors, and those kind of things would be able to put the information that the the prescriber and the administrator at the time saying, so this patient has got this medication prescribed, and then the alert might come up or might, you know, if we forget to the AI stage of things, you know, not even be able to, to prescribe or administer that kind of medication. Um, I know now we're looking at uh, looking into medication cabinets. So for closed loop, when that comes along, we can start looking at how medications themselves can be dispensed based on the person that's been prescribed. Um, so there's there's a lot going on. Um, and I, I remember thinking 13 years ago when I very first used an electronic prescribing system, how advanced it was. And I was thinking, oh, this is so much better than paper. But 13 years down the line, I'm still thinking to myself, 
there is a lot more we can do. There, there is still so much more we can do, and we've got to keep developing. We've got to keep pushing on and, and thinking. And groups like this, I think, is fantastic because there's so many ideas and so many different people working on on this. Because it, it, it's it's not just the future for the for for the vendors like where I'm working now, but it's it's really the future for our patients. Uh, you know, as I say, I'm a nurse by background, and I still practice as a nurse. And fundamentally, for me, it's the patient safety. But I hope that answers your question. Sorry, my 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 battery is flickering now. Sorry. No problem, Stefan. Um, I do want to end, you know, the panel uh, with the voice of the patient. So uh, I would like to ask Robert, um, you know, for his final thoughts about, you know, we constantly talk about uh, patients and putting patients in the center. So let's hear from a representative of the patients about what patients need most and perhaps how can patients take a more active role in shared decision making um, I thought that, that was one very uh, powerful message uh, again from the movie from Abdullah Al-Hasabi when he said that you know we need to empower patients better and it's really hard to empower patients when they have 15 to 20 drugs prescribed um, yeah it's, it's impossible so um, perhaps just just a note uh, from the patient perspective, from my perspective, I think um, clinicians will always need to, in the reconciliation process, regardless of the list that they have in front of them, ask the patient uh, what medications they're taking because patients might not be taking medications that are prescribed by choice um, uh, because or because it's just too difficult. Uh, and it's a whole broad topic on its own. So maybe a topic for the next documentary. But uh, for now, Robert, please, um, for some final thoughts. And just unmute yourself, please. Good. Um, yes, thank you very much for the opportunity to take part in this. I think what, what I would like to say as a sort of summary point, really, has already been said in the video, but I just want to emphasize it, that patients are probably the most valuable and most underutilized resource in the healthcare system. You know, we don't want to be seen, especially those of us with chronic problems, we have to keep going back to doctors, we don't want to be seen as the problem. We want to be seen as part of the solution. And with appropriate training and support from well-funded patient organizations, patients can be good patients, asking high-quality questions, being active and positive participants in a decision-making process. And, um, you know, we're very happy to work with everybody. It's for our own good, but, we're, you know, they need to listen to us and respect what we say and involve us in processes, whether we're talking about the prescriber or whether we're talking about the pharmacist, whether we're talking about the design of the packaging and the leafleting. Um, so really good communication between the patient and any sort of healthcare professional um, with a willingness to involve us in, in good communication um, will help that patient buy-in, will facilitate that adherence, um, will help the systems, whether they're AI or manual systems, to develop learning about what works and what doesn't work. Um, I also would like to pick up on a point that was mentioned earlier about system-wide change. It's not just the healthcare professionals or the patients who need to change. Um, uh, it was mentioned about in Kuwait, um, some things are quite um, 
down motivated perhaps should we should we say um we do what people say rather than uh, actively participate i can also give an example from qatar where um an expat was suffering some flu um an expat not working in healthcare working just generally in the system building or something like that and uh, in the uk if you had a few if you had flu you would just take a few days off work um and then uh, you know self medicate with something you buy from the chemist if necessary um this particular person had by law because he was an expat he had to drive across the city even though he was unwell uh, in rush hour to go to a hospital wait several hours to see a doctor be prescribed a medication which was an antibiotic and he knew his own system well enough to know that an antibiotic was not only unnecessary but was actually not a good thing to take so he went home didn't take them two or three days later came back to work now he only had to do that because that's what the system militated that's what the system demanded he couldn't get his salary he would lose his job if he didn't follow that system now that's frankly stupid that's over prescribing uh, somebody's activity when he you know he was the sort of person who could just make a decision for himself and 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 you know get better in his own time um so there's lots of examples like that as well but one thing i think finally i'd like to say is that i've really enjoyed this interaction i hope others have well and um i really would value the opportunity to spend more time together and discuss these things more in more detail thank you thank you robert and that uh, concludes our panel we um already spent um, an hour on it it's getting a little bit late but if anyone uh, wants to add anything please um either raise your hand or just unmute yourself that also goes for everyone in the audience i would like to thank um the speakers from the movie that also joined this discussion it's great to see you and um yeah so does anyone want to add anything alexander go ahead just uh, um, you know because obviously i've been very critical right i have a positive outlook on where we're heading i'm just thinking that uh, sometimes we you know we jump the gun a little bit and we go over you know we, we're thinking ai when we have a lot of low tech solutions at hand and so forth so i have a very positive outlook i just think uh, healthcare often is not critical enough with itself so i don't want to make that same mistake and, and i very much belong to the system So um, um we're fixing it from within. Um so very much enjoyed it. Really well done. Thank you. Thank you. Um anyone else? Jack go just ahead. One quick yeah, just one quick comment. Um I've been saying that we should uh turn our healthcare system or the hospital system from a cost capture system to a really healthcare care delivery system. um but actually if we have ai that help us do all the cost capture then we can have more time to make it a care delivery system right so so i think there's no conflict uh into what ai can help um in terms of cost capturing or care delivery and as well as you know medication error uh reducing yeah uh, i agree with you uh Mark uh, maybe we'll complement this we'll say that it's artificial intelligence with human empathy and empathy toward patient but empathy also toward healthcare professionals definitely uh, much needed especially in the current state of uh, of healthcare IT um 
So at this point, I would like to thank everyone for taking the time to, first of all, see the movie, um, uh, join uh, this panel. This will be published on the Faces of Digital Health YouTube channel and on the um, um, podcast. So ev everyone that couldn't join us today live can uh, have a look at this, listen to this. I will add links to the documentary also to the show notes. So uh, thank you again, uh, everyone. Everyone, and I hope we can continue this discussion um, to just impact uh, the patient safety further. And I think everyone can take something from it. So I'm hoping that, you know, patients uh, will consider them as uh, the participants in the healthcare system that have the power and that can uh, impact their care, but they do uh, have to uh, take Uh, not interest, but responsibility. So not just expect that everything is going to be decided uh, for them. Family can have an immense impact uh, when you're feeling unwell and perhaps others um, have a better understanding about making decisions. And when it comes to healthcare uh, professionals, um, uh, it's very difficult to kind of navigate between the empathy towards the patients and the volume of the patients that you see and to still stay sane and not get overwhelmed by all the pain and the, the suffering that you see. So again, a very complex uh, topic, but if all the stakeholders uh, contribute a little, we can already achieve a lot. So thank you again and um, see you at the next opportunity. And I will end the meeting. Thank you. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Enjoy other episodes as well and visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. All the discussions with speakers in the documentary Overdose will be published during the summer. Stay tuned!